by Louis L'Amour is about Shell Tucker and his pa having run into a lot of struggle and bad luck in the past trying to make a future for themselves. They managed to raise 20000 with some folks in Texas, which is stolen by Tucker's morally corrupt friends, Kid Reese and Doc Sites, who have joined bands with the famed outlaw Bob Heseltine. With his paw dead from a bad leg, Tucker is left alone on the trail after them until he meets a man named Con Judy who sympathizes with his case. They start spreading word of the thieves around the town of Leadville, where Con's already existing good reputation helps Tucker gain one for himself. Tucker barely survives several attempts on his life by the outlaws, but manages to give them no sleep or a real chance to spend the money. For the better half of the year, he grows in experience and confidence after he is shot and left for dead on a mountain, rides shotgun on a stagecoach that encounters a holdup, is left for dead in the desert by a ruthless criminal named Pony Zale, and is rescued by Indians. In the end, his name is famous in the Wild West, and he finally beats Hesseltine to the trigger after their group is slowly picked apart by betrayal and Tucker's persistence. Now he is free to leave behind his drifting gunslinging history and build a life with a girl named Vashti. Welcome to the 11th episode of The Two Retired Homeschoolers. I'm Holly Matthews, AKA Man Voice. And I'm Rebecca. The baby-voiced one. And today, we're talking about Tucker by Louis Lamar. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, so this is my first time reading this. I've read lots of Louis Lamar books before, but not this particular one. And I liked it. <laughs> it's not like my new favorite, but I thought it was good. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? So, yeah, I, I found that this book was a really good break to fantasy, which I didn't realize how much fantasy I actually read. But I just loved, like, the simpleness and just the, like, the, it, it was so straightforward and I found it refreshing. And it was really good to read such a famous and well-known author who is kind of, I don't know, a bit, he's not a hidden gem. I, I feel like he's very much still well-known, but his fame has kind of died out a bit, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I mean, unless you're, like, a grandpa over the age of 60, he's maybe a hidden gem. For a grandpa over the age of 60, he's, like, the greatest writer of them all. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's mostly old people who know of him these days. Um, which is unfortunate, because he's old a genuinely and, good writer. Yeah, no, he is a good writer. Old I was going to say old people and my sisters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um... And yeah, it was good. I, I was glad because this seemed to be one of his middle of the run kind of books. It wasn't one of his more famous ones, but it wasn't like, oh, this just isn't known by Lamore readers. So I feel like I kind of got a good understanding of his style. I liked the characters, the plot, everything was just well-rounded and well done. It wasn't like earth shattering, but it, it didn't need to be. So yeah, that was my first impression. My youngest sister, this is her favorite Louis Lamore book. So it was fun to read it and see what book was hers and to speculate on why this particular one was her favorite of all of them <laughs> so yeah <laughs> all right um okay i'll dive into the bit of research i did which is small indeed because there's very little information about the book itself um it was published in 1971 by banton publishing company it is the 76th book that lamore ever wrote and it seems to have been received well. Again, it wasn't terribly famous, but for instance, on the website Goodreads, it has a rating of 4.10 from 
1,011 different people who gave their opinions. And, yep, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so possibly one of the reasons it, like, didn't make any sort of splash is because Louis L'Amour wrote a gazillion books. He wrote 89 novels over the course of his life and, like, more than that, short stories. Um, and he wrote three books a year. Oh, wow. So, like, every year he published three books. So, yeah. He was very prolific. He must have had, like, um, a really good system to just turn out books like that and so consistently, too. Yeah, I think... I think part of it was that he was familiar with his period. Like, he he wrote every, well, not every single book he wrote, but the majority of the books he wrote, especially once writing became his career, were Westerns, and he'd had an interest in the West. He'd grown up around people who grew up in the Old West. He'd worked with people who'd ridden with Billy the Kid and stuff like that. And, like, so he had all this knowledge from his past life. He'd studied it. He... He had this interest in it, and so when he sat down to write a book set in it, he didn't have to do, like, he had to do research, but he didn't have to familiarize himself with an era about which he knew nothing. He was, like, working in something that was really comfortable to him. I feel like that had something to do with it. Well, and also he said, oh, yeah, so here, here's a quote from him. When he starts to write a new book, I study an area very thoroughly, and usually I'm familiar with it on the ground. I've been there. If not, I go back. Sometimes I go back anyway and look it over again. But also, I do research in the original documents. I try to find diaries from people who lived in the area at the time, and many of my stories come out of the diaries. I also read the newspapers that were published at the time. I literally saturate myself in the period and the time. So, like, you know, he gets a lot of ideas from actually just looking at the actual history of the time. So, I don't know. Maybe that yeah. is why he does it so fast, but I just... He's really interesting. I was going to say, it's crazy how creatively he did his research. Like, he wasn't just doing Google searches or going to the library and getting one or two books. Like, he was pulling from diaries and newspapers and talking to people. Like, that's really cool. <laughs> that's so cool. That's how I aspire to do research. Like, and, and I also think that you can learn about an era and find it really interesting by just reading a book that someone else wrote about it. But if you really want to understand, like, what an era was like, you need to look at, like, you need to talk to people who were there. You need to read diaries and see what was in the newspaper. Like, you need to immerse yourself to some extent in primary search doc, in primary resources. Because if you don't, you just don't quite understand it at the same level. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, sure. like, as I aspire to research like him, like, I I listened to him say that, and I was like, I am so ashamed of my own. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Anyways. Yeah. So, Louis Lamar was born in 1908 on his grandfather's homestead in North Dakota. So, his grandfather was a homesteader who fought Indians, just by the way. he His grandfather fought Indians, and his great-grandfather also fought Indians and was scalped by Indians. And his grandfather, okay, he said, let me find the quote. He says, my great-grandfather was killed by Indians up in North Dakota and scalped, and my grandfather fought Indians. Yeah, and there used to be some of the old Indians my grandfather had fought used to come around and visit him. And they'd sit down on the lawn and talk over the old days, you know, and drink a lot of coffee and tea, load it half full of sugar. And he said after his grandfather died, they never came back again. They stayed away from there, and he missed them. He enjoyed having them, but he, like, grew up with the Indians that his grandfather fought, hearing all the stories and the talk. So, that's, that's cool. That's insane! 
And then um, he dropped out of high school, so he didn't even finish high school. And he lived in most of the states of the West doing various, like, careers. He was a farmhand. He baled hay in New Mexico. He was a lumberjack in the Pacific Northwest. He was a longshoreman. I'm not completely sure what that is, but I assume it has to do, do with the shore. <laughs> he was a merchant seaman, so he sailed He sailed to China. He sailed to, like, the Indies. He worked with a man who was raised by the Indians, talked to him, you know, an old-timer, learned stuff from him. On a job in New Mexico, there was a guy who rode with Billy the Kid, like, was documented to have ridden with Billy the Kid, been in jail with Billy the Kid, been shot up with Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid was buried across the road, and so Louis L'Amour was like, be like, oh, that's cool. And one of the guys he was working with was like, oh, you need to talk to old Tom. He rode with Billy the Kid. And so, like, he talked to this old-timer who rode with Billy the Kid and only had one leg, by the way. He had a wooden leg now at this point. Anyways. Um, so he did a bunch of jobs. He he was a boxer. He was a fighter. According to his own self, he fought 59 fights, lost five, and won 34 knockout fights. <laughs> so he was not modest about his own accomplishments. He liked <laughs> to fight, apparently. His dad was... French Canadian, and he changed the spelling of his last name because you know how it's like L apostrophe A M O U R, which is very French looking. He changed it to be more American L A capital M O O R E, Lamour. And Louis Lamour changed it back. But his mom was Irish, so he was Irish. So I guess it kind of makes sense that he um, liked to fight. But um, I, I thought you would like to know that he was Irish. I thought you would like to. Yes, I, I feel so proud to have read him now. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder I like him. Yeah. Um, he fought in World War II. He was in the army. And he had written some before that, but he said, like, when he got back from World War II, just like everybody who got back from World War II, he's kind of at a loose end. He's like, okay, now I have to start over. I don't really know. And he got introduced he got invited to a party of this editor that he knew, and the editor was like, What are you gonna do? And Louis Lamar was like, I, I don't know, man, I'm, you know, I don't know. And the, right, the editor was like, well, we've talked about, like, the Old West. You have this interest in the Old West. You know stuff about it. Why don't you write me some Westerns? Westerns? Like, I, I need some Western novels to sell. And so Louis Moore was like, well, like, why not? So he, like, sat down and started trying to make a Western writing career. He said that he, um, it was a, like, conscious decision that he made that he was going to do this despite possible reasons not to, one of which was that Westerns, were considered not real literature. So he knew he would never get like big critical acclaim because yeah, basically he just, he thought he would do it anyways. And so he, he wrote Westerns and was successful. His books were translated into German, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, uh, Croatian, and Chinese. There were over wow. 30 movies made out of his books. He got an honorary PhD from Jamestown College in 1972, which is kind of funny because he didn't even graduate high school. <laughs> Um, he got, in 1982, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. In 1984, the Pre Presidential Medal of Freedom by Ronald Reagan. Wow. Um, yeah, he had a wife and two kids. Would you say he made the genre of Westerns, like, respectable? Because he seemed to be the frontier man in that genre and, and the most famous one, so. I possibly. I mean, I don't know if he really did make it respectable, like, does anyone have think of the Western genre as, like, respectable? We still kind of think of it as pulp fiction. Hmm. But I would say that he probably made it more respectable than it was because he was a good writer. 
See, that's kind of unfortunate because the Western culture was like a legitimate culture and to write about it, I feel like shouldn't be any less worthy of praise. I agree. I agree with you. Um, and he like, dude, do you mind if I just like read the quote? I have so many quotes of him. Go, go for it. He, like, cause he, okay. He's talking about like the West and cause obviously Westerns were really popular as movies back then too. And he's talking about like how accurate to real life were these portrayals. Cause his books, you know, he tried to make them accurate and which he could talk to people who literally lived in the old west so he had an unfair advantage there but that's really cool but anyways he says that like gunfighters are kind of overemphasized in fiction like those things happened and there were gunfighters but like gunfights and stuff it would tend to happen in like the red light districts you know like mm. on the wrong side of the tracks um it was kind of like an inner city problem and a lot of normal people in the west never even encountered stuff like that like how we never encounter like inner city crime and gang violence we just live our lives and that stuff happens in modern day america kind of simultaneously all that like more seedy side of life of the west happened but it wasn't it wasn't as prevalent as movies make it seem it that's is. interesting because when we think of the old wild west we think of like you know guns like guns were a huge part of it and and then we think of everybody running around shooting off each other's heads he talks about guns later i'll get to that in a second okay but they people didn't go around being irresponsible with them yeah um he said like people would often gain the gunfighter reputation simply from winning a few fights like they were in a fight you know maybe they were in a few and it was unfortunate and they won and so now they're like a gunfighter and that's their reputation and they didn't want it like they don't want to be known as a gunfighter but they are mm. um and it's not like people went around, like, killing 30 people to become a gunfighter. Okay, okay, here's the guns thing. He says, One myth I like to get away from is the idea that a gunfighter or a group of gunfighters is going to come in and terrorize a western town. It just couldn't happen. Because, you see, nearly everybody in that town grew up using a gun. They were familiar with it. But the thing was that in every town, I would venture to say that two-thirds of the adult men had fought in the Civil War. Well, these men were used to guns. Nobody was going to scare them. No tin horn was going to come along with a gun and buffalo them at all. So you can see what happened at Northfield, Minnesota, when the Jesse James and Cole Younger gang tries to rob two banks there. They got shot to pieces by a bunch of farmers and businessmen. And the same thing happened in Kansas with the Dalton gang. They got wiped out. The one man who survived had 16 buckshot in him. Wow. It's crazy how competent the average guy was back then. I know. <laughs> Probably the average guy in the West was more competent than the average guy in the East because even nowadays, like, a guy who lives out in the boonies is more competent than your average guy who lives in the city. Like, people That's around true. here know how to do stuff that people where I used to live didn't know how to do. But, yeah, um, he says, okay, on fast draws, it was very important because fast draws were a thing. Because if two men got in a gun battle, it was important who got off the first shot. But, he says, I have talked to at least 30 of the old gunfighters and outlaws. Again, not fair that he got to do this. And they all <laughs> said the same thing. He says the first one who told him this was the guy who taught him to use a pistol. So he learned to use a pistol from an old western guy. Anyways, this guy said, the fast draw is important, but the most important thing is making the first shot count. You may never get another one. And many a man who drew very fast put his first bullet in the dust right out in front of him, and then he never got off another one. And he says that in his books. Yeah, I've heard he that. Did. So that's interesting. Yeah. 
Oh, here's another thing about guns. Another thing I like to get away from is this idea that when a man gets shot, he drops. Some people have the idea that a shot always kills a man and knocks him. It isn't true at all. You take a really tough man, he keeps right on coming. And this guy who made quite a study of gunshot injuries a number of years ago, he decided after studying them very carefully that unless a man was shot right through the brain, right through the heart, or was hit on a big bone, he wasn't going to go down and he was going to keep coming if he was mad. Wow. So They were like big angry bulls back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh and so this guy asked him like was the west a lawless place like we think of it as kind of lawless like we were saying earlier and he's saying this isn't true there really was a lot of justice and a lot of very forthright thinking however they had very little patience they didn't want justice delayed they wanted it now they didn't want long trials many of the lynchings so-called of rustlers out in the west happened because some fellow would catch a man stealing his cattle he'd hang him right on the spot if there was a tree handy because it was easier than taking him a hundred miles into the courthouse and jail, leaving him there, riding back home, riding in a hundred more miles more to testify, riding back again, and leaving his business, leaving all his work, much simpler to hang him on the spot. Oh That's what he said. I can Which, totally see that. <laughs> I can see it too, and I don't know if I should feel bad that, like, I'm like, well, yeah, it is much simpler. Law and order be hanged. Yeah. Like you almost I, admire I, I it think, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I and I do think that like I don't know, have you ever watched Bonanza? Oh yes, very much. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this particular episode, but there's an episode and it made me so mad when I watched this years ago. Because Adam and I think Joe was helping him too or something, Adam has these three guys who are like suspected of killing a woman or something like they did something bad and the, all the townspeople want to just hang them and adam's like no i'm taking him across the hundred miles to justice you know we're gonna see just we're, we're gonna do this the right way we're gonna do it by the law you can't just whatever and they're like we don't care about the law we just care about justice and they end up killing the two innocent guys but adam is still there protecting the life of the guilty guy because he's gonna take him to law and it just made me so mad because it was like this is a stupid way to set up a story like you want Adam to be the good guy here? Adam's the guy who got good guys killed over protecting a murderer. Like, yes, not taking the law into your own hands is probably good because, you know, it's probably good and vigilante justice doesn't usually end well. But, like, these people just want justice. This guy killed a woman. Like, if you know he's guilty... I, I'm not saying I'm on the townspeople's side in this situation, but the way the movie framed it, and westerns would do this a lot. I've seen similar um, plots, even though I've never seen one that made me as bad as that one. <laughs> it, mm. It's like they have this outsized emphasis on law as the only means to justice. Even though, obviously, some westerns are like, no, the law hasn't done it. Now we got to shoot him in a shootout. But my point being... I'm really not sure what I think about, like, law versus justice in your own hands. Like, I, I, I kind of respect the idea of, like, we know this guy's guilty. Let's just serve justice. We want justice. Like, wanting justice is a good thing. And I, I just, I don't know. I did not mean um, to rant on that for so long. But I find that very interesting. No, that's a very I find good that point. I haven't really thought about that very much. But, yeah if it comes between the law and justice, because sometimes they can be at odds. And 
other times they don't work together quite as well as they should because you think of them as synonyms but they aren't necessarily in all situations yeah um so yeah he says gun duels were like an acceptable way of settling a dispute and also he says that white settlers were not nearly as duplicitous and genocidal toward indians as people like to talk about there was much more just like human nature on both sides um, white people kept some treaties and broke some treaties. The Indians did the same. He says there were cases of murder, there were cases of brutality, there were cases of unnecessary killing on both sides. Yeah. I would agree yeah. with that from what I, I've read different historical sources on some incidents, and it, it seems like that is the most likely case. Uh, for some reason, a lot of people emphasize, like, the whites' injustice more. So, yeah, that's a good point. I don't understand why. But yeah. Oh, when he, he said there's a story about, there's a famous story about the Indian selling Manhattan Island for $24. He didn't even own it, says Louis Lamore. That was the first crooked real estate deal in America that they know of. The Indian came down out of the hills to go fishing down there, and he didn't even belong in Manhattan Island in that area, and a fellow asked him if he'd sell him his right to it. Sure, why not? So he sold it, got his fish, and went back home. Which, that's a great story. I just have to say, like, that Indian... <laughs> Yeah, you can have my right to it, which is zero. Thank you for the money. <laughs> that is a really funny story, yeah. That is, like, when I was studying the history of their different perspectives on land ownership and everything, I was like, wow, because I've only ever viewed owning land one way, which is the way, you know, of the West. But to just see it the way the Indians did, it's like something you wouldn't ever question unless you were faced with a different perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah. He says a misconception about cowboys was that they were, like, uneducated. He says they were often very well educated. They didn't even necessarily come from America. Like, they weren't even American by birth necessarily. There were lots of cowboys that came from Europe and, you know, the east of America, and they were often very well educated. And they had – they a common theme among them was that they had this sort of romantic ideals, and they came west looking for something. And he says, by and large, they found it. Like – being a cowboy wasn't super romantic. It was brutally hard work, he said, 16 hours a day. But these cowboys loved it. Like, they didn't just do it because they had to because that was how they made money. They did love being a cowboy. He says the old dry-as-dust cowboys would tell you gruffly, oh, that's all nonsense. But it isn't, he says, and you can see that in their own lives when they begin telling you about it, that they have this, like, they just have this love for the lifestyle and the land. He says, one more quote. <laughs> <laughs> out here over this country, there were a thousand little Alamos, people who fought and died out there to maintain their homes, to keep themselves, and they were bigger than life because the times demanded it. Hmm. So that's his perspective on the West and from you know, a lot Louis of primary Lamour, source research. He's an authority on the subject, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. and yeah, he actually is. He grew up, he talked to people, he raised, like, I, I am... I already knew, like, he was cool, but I have so much respect for him now, like, even more than I did before. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, in the interview I saw of him, he said he had a strong aversion to profanity and that, you know, like, in Tucker, which is a good example, there was never one curse word. Um, and he says that profanity, oh. he thinks, is, like, a cover-up for bad writing a lot of the time. And he can make his writing real without it, even though, 
you know, obviously there were real people who used real curse words a lot in that time. Yeah, it, it must have come along later said. in his life because that seemed to not be true for all of his life. I Yeah, I, I was going to say, I've read books by him that, like, they're not, like, bad, but they definitely have some cuss words in them. But it's true. He he his writing can be very real without it. That's the that's the like. I've thought about this because people are like, well, it has to be real, so we have to you know use the words people use, and it's like, there may be a place for that in some situations, but when you say that you you have to do that to make something real, you're just not good at art if you can't make it real without that. Like, yeah. art is not supposed to be a one for one reproduction of reality. You're translating it through a medium into something that's supposed to say something about it. Like, you, just because you can't explicitly say something in reality in fiction doesn't mean you can't make your fiction real or impactful. So, I like, I like that that was his opinion because I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can fully represent humankind's faults without actually... I don't know, delving into them. Like, he does mention in the book several different instances where a character cursed or they, you know, said something bad under their breath, but he doesn't say what it is, you know? So that's, like, a way of doing it without actually doing it. Yeah. Well, you want to get started on the book? Are we going to talk about his writing style, I guess? That's yes. the natural segue here. Let's do it. Okay, the writing style. So, yes, for as simple as his writing was, I was shocked at how vividly he would describe stuff like nature or um, people's characters. Like, he was always straight to the point and rather blunt, but, like, he did it artistically and well to where you could grasp things in such a short amount of time and with so few words. Um, yes, he has such economy of phrasing. A good example of this is my favorite quote from this book. Um, I'll just read it real quick. This is a description of nature. Frost had turned the leaves, and the mountainsides were splashed with golden clouds of aspen. Great banks of them poured down the steep slopes, as though the earth had suddenly decided to give up and pour, pour her gold out to the waiting hands of men. Only this gold was there for everyone to have. They had only to look. It was the kind of wealth that stayed with a man down the years, the kind you could never spend, but the memory of it waited in your mind to be refreshed when another autumn came. So, I just, I love that so much. <laughs> Um, lovely. An interesting thing I found about his writing, he has pretty abrupt transitions. It's almost like he doesn't really even believe in transitions. Did you notice that? Yes. Yes. I wish I wish I had an example, but I would have to flip through and find it because I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I like simultaneously found it almost a poor writing technique, but at the same time, I found it so refreshing because I was just, again, like with fantasy, I feel like they really dwell on tr transitions a lot. It depends, but like, you know, we'll be reading Lord of the Rings here pretty soon. And this, you know, he, he just on to the next thing. It was just kind of nice. <laughs> oh, I have a good example. As Tucker is chasing the outlaws to get back his money, there's a literal part of the book where I think it's the start of a chapter. Like, it starts out with, for the next six months, Tucker continued his journey, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, wow, what a way to wrap up that huge section of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and I also found that he would randomly like major plot points of the story like it's almost as if he knew he was writing for older people and they would forget stuff so he would say stuff over and over like 
like things you probably wouldn't forget unless you were reading this book off and on and like let a week go by without picking it up again. So I thought that was interesting. I wonder if it was supposed to be like sort of, you know, how Tucker's thinking like that, that fact that we know it comes into Tucker's mind. And so Tucker like keeps dwelling on it. That's a good point. Cause yeah, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about and I don't really know why he did that either. I, I mean, I guess and it he's... was nice to reinforce those points into your head, but still. Uh, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I don't remember. I, I agree. His <laughs> He's very straightforward, and he does not, like, play all these tricks of subtlety and, you know, like, he just lays it on the table, but he's good at laying it on the table. His writing is so simple but so vivid. Yeah agreed and and, and and he can be so dry sometimes like it's just, he's very short and dry and i find it funny i wrote down multiple quotes of that well like okay tucker as a character he, this guy he smiled at me heard about you in that shooting heard about them fellers making off with your money that there don't seem right it wasn't <laughs> yeah dry that's, is that's a very good word <laughs> oh oh and here's one I'd been raised where the long wind blows and the short grass plains roll away to the edge of the sky. And that's like a single sentence, but I like see it. Do you see it just from that sentence? Yeah, it says a lot. And can I just say I love the phrase, the long wind? Like, I don't know if it makes exact literal sense, but I know what it means. That's a good phrase. And it's, it's like two words and it's very good. Yeah, he's, like, good at making you feel stuff without kind of manipulating you into it. Like, oh, you should sympathize with this character because blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, he makes you feel stuff, but it's very much you're, you are in control of how you see things at the same time. I know. I love that. And I think that's really refreshing, too, especially I've read so many modern books, and I don't know if modern fantasy is especially susceptible to this, but I know it happens in modern fantasy as well. Where it just, I just feel emotionally manipulated the whole time by the way the author's writing. Like, they're just trying to, like, push me this way and push me that way and ring me out and just, like, they're just trying to just, like, squeeze me of every last drop of emotion and I don't like it at all. And this, it, like, you can feel so much reading this book, but, like, it's you. You're freely responding to the book. The book isn't, like, squeezing you. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Okay, so Tucker coming of age. Uh, yeah, this was a very much a coming of age book, like a transition from yeah. boyhood to manhood. Mm -hmm. And Louis Moore writes those fairly often. I've read several of them by him, and he's very good at them, in my opinion. An example of this is you can see Tucker's values changing over the course of the book. So beforehand, he really looked up to these people like Doc sites and kid reese and he thought they were big and mean and like they were going to change the world Tough. right but then he really <laughs> saw how yellow yellow bellied they were later on and how these were very small people compared to people like um con and and people who are actually pushing forward the frontier and building a new world and all that and so he went from like dreaming and just valuing fun and wealth and all that to like earning a good reputation and having actual knowledge and an education, even if you don't like go to school. Um, and he also wanted to be a part of help building the new world. So, yeah.
And he goes from looking up to his friends to and fearing them to doing the opposite. He then goes to looking down on them. And by the end of the book, he doesn't even fear them. In fact, he pities them. So what did you think of the coming to age? And and did you find it tropey at all or real to life? Honestly, I just found, like, it's very basic and it's it didn't, like, take any surprising twists and turns or anything with how he came of age, but it seemed very real to life to me. You know, a new experience caused him to, like, realize things he hadn't realized before. And he found people to look up to and then he wanted to be like those people and he... He took these principles that he believed in, and then he tried to do what he could with them. And he also, I do think he came perilously close to turning his um, search for the money and everything into an obsession, but he didn't. He always, like, he talked to himself, and he kind of, like, kept it in mind, like, why this matters? Why am I still doing this? Is it just because I'm obsessed, or is it because I need to do this and... That was like a conflict in the book that I thought was really interesting, actually, because yeah. different characters who all cared about Tucker had different opinions on that, like whether or not this was healthy and what he should be doing. Mm. Yeah, and I think it contrasted with a lot of different coming-to-age films and books. A lot of, at least the modern ones, seem to be like, okay, so you got the protagonist and they have all these insecurities they're setting out on this journey with. And then through experience and crazy adventures, they gain respect um, for themselves and they overcome their insecurities, right? Where in, as in this book, like, it's not like Tucker doesn't have insecurities starting out, but it's more like he's proud and he doesn't see the world as it actually is. And the book more focuses on him transitioning into not thinking of himself so much. It's not even that he has to prove himself to himself. It's like, he doesn't really think about himself anymore, and he starts to view life as it actually is, and that's his focus now. Um, yeah, he like instead of instead of it being a book about how he has to prove himself, it's a story about how he transcends the adolescent need to prove himself and can actually yeah. get started living life as an adult. Yeah, he's very much living now uh, out in actual reality instead of living in his head which is kind of what growing up is a lot there's a lot of that in growing up mm -hmm. and yeah. i don't think that coming of age stories often get that like yeah. that transition doesn't necessarily happen yeah. yeah i like that a lot okay so psychology of an obsession what is the line between when an obsession goes between being crazy or you're just passionate and and when should you give up? Um, because I think the whole never give up thing, it's a nice thought and it sounds nice, but it's not realistic and it's also not helpful for real life. Molly <laughs> and I have talked about this. Like, it's great to not be a quitter, um, but you just make life hard on yourself if you don't quit when it is the right time to quit and the right thing to quit. Like, mm -hmm. you that doesn't have to be this... Not quitting is a good character quality, but it is not the ultimate character quality that every other thing must be sacrificed for. Yeah. So. That's very true. What do you think about the point where Tucker does decide to quit? He's like, okay, I'm done now. This is silly. I'm going back to Vashti. <laughs> I was going to ask you that because I, I was 
very much divided with Tucker. Like, I felt his inner conflict about the situation. Like, there were good reasons for him to quit, and there were good legitimate reasons for him to keep going. And what would it say about him to go either way? Um, and what were the people in his life saying? And, yeah, and, and the point when he does finally give up in the desert, like, it wasn't this moment in a book like they do a lot where it's like oh and the character just gives up they came all this way and now they give up but then at the very end they're convinced to keep going an inch further and that inch made all the difference like it wasn't cheesy like that no like he gives up and it's a calculated decision and it's not even like an emotional one it's just like okay it's time it's time now and I was like, you know what? I agree with you. And I don't know why this time is the time in particular, but yeah, you're right. Um, and then it does end up working out for him, but it's not because, you know, he just had to go that one extra inch or whatever. Yeah. But you know, like, so I was watching The Last of the Samurai the other day and I thought about like the kamikaze, you know, and how they, they're kind of like the infinite example of how one does not give up no matter what. And it's like, yeah, that that's a good example of how giving up <laughs> can actually be good and useful sometimes. Like, you have to have values in place that you're working towards, and you have to assess whether giving up or not is in line with those values. It can't just be like, oh, I am living for the value of not giving up. I agree. Them sparing their lives could be useful for the for their values on keeping the war going or being useful in other ways but no they just like had to go till they died you know (laughs) (laughs) sometimes people can be close-minded and other times it's good and admirable to keep going but i wanted to ask what what did you think of tucker giving up because i don't think you gave your opinion I honestly didn't really know what to think. I mean, I guess I kind of agree with you. It was like, yeah, like, I support you making this decision, buddy. And, like, I liked how it played out. And, yeah, I mean, like, it was fair for him to give up or to keep going. And so it was a fair decision. And I don't really know what I think of it from a narrative standpoint or from, like, a judging the character standpoint. I just thought it was an interesting plot point. Yeah. Yeah, it is complicated by the fact that he was like, all right, I've been searching for like, what, a year now? Uh, And I could literally be going at this for the rest of my life. Is this how I want to spend my life? And if it does matter to me this much, how much of my life am I willing to give to this? Yeah, like he really thought it through. This is a surprisingly nuanced book for such a simple book, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, and I just want to clarify really quick. So Tucker, yes, he was fighting to get back his money, but also he was fighting for the people back home in Texas. I don't know that we really made this clear in the plot, but like he wanted to pay back the people in Texas because it was mostly their money and they needed they needed it. So that that's just uh, it wasn't just all for him, by the way. <laughs> Even though at that point it was complicated by the fact that like it's been a year now, they've moved on and assumed the money is lost. Yeah. Okay. So was the ending rushed? Um, yeah, so you know how, like, in Emma, it was kind of, like, a very, a pretty slow-moving book. I mean, it's Jane Austen, what do you expect? But at the end, it's like, oh, and then I all the pop explosions and fall into fights, place. obviously. Sorry. <laughs> yes. 
Um, but at the, like, the last quarter of the book, probably even less than then, just the last part, it's like all the plot points fell into place. And then she had all these characters making these decisions and it was rushed through. And I don't think it was to that extreme with this book, but I do think, because, you know, you saw the little outlaw group with Heseltine and Reese and Doc Sites and Ruby Shaw and all that. You saw their group like disintegrating over time as some of them got scared or others got shot or they turned traitor on each other. So it was a slow decline. Ruby Shaw literally poisoned them because she's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Um, So you saw this slow disintegration. But at the same time, it was kind of like, okay, so Tucker decides to quit. Oh, then he runs into Reese, who's been poisoned. Then he runs into Ruby Shaw, who's been turned traitor on by uh, Heseltine. Then Heseltine just suddenly decides to leave him all the money, finally. And then Heseltine comes back. And, oh, coincidence, he runs into Vashti and her father, who's the people he wanted to see the most. Um, So, yeah, it it just seemed like a lot happened in a short amount of time. (laughs) I agree. Although the only thing, I think it was fine for it to wrap up, you know, like, the group was falling apart, and it was fine for it to kind of go fast. The one thing is him running into Vashti and her dad. It was like, okay. I mean, it's fine. He wanted to get the book over with and be like, now they can run off into the sunset already. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, it kind of did feel like he was like, okay, I'm ready for this book. <laughs> <laughs> um. But, it, it, I mean, he didn't ruin it. I've read, I've read books where I feel like the author was just, like, trying to get through this ending <laughs> and just kind of, like, threw good writing and everything out the window just to get done with it. And it didn't feel like that. So it was rushed, but not to great consequence. Okay. So common elements within Lamore's writing. Yeah. Uh, this is, um, I guess I get to talk because this I've read. This is your read. tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know what to say exactly. I just find it very interesting that there are these common themes that just come up again and again in his writing. Like, there are so often, like, okay, so in this book, Tucker goes with Con Judy to this town, and he he realizes that if he'd gone by himself, this kind of, like, scruffy-looking kid with a gun looking for some guys, he might not have been treated so well because they wouldn't have known what to make of him. But he went with Con Judy, and Con Judy had a good reputation. And Con Judy was went out of his way to be helpful to Tucker, to introduce him to the right people, to make sure people knew that he was his friend. And so Tucker has this good reputation, which helps him out multiple times. And he sees that, like, it is very worthwhile to have the respect of good people and that your reputation affects how effectively you'll be able to do anything you need to do and i just feel like that's a common theme with louis lamore that people value their good name and the respect of just the regular people is like important and i just i don't know i think it's interesting that that comes up up so often i wonder if it's something that in all his research on the old west he found was important to the people back then or if it's simply something that he also maybe he also finds it important you know yeah like these concepts of respect and a good name yeah and that's interesting because it's like it, it contrasts interestingly with the theme in heidi where the grandfather was just like oh the opinion of common man just doesn't even matter because they're prone to finding fault in people and just not assessing things correctly and it's like i agree with both of them at the same time like same 
yeah, like common sense is awarded to the common man. Some people it skips out on, but usually people have a, a more or less good sense of common sense. Um, and so it's like, you want to be admired by the common man, but at the same time, you don't want to like live for their opinion. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's just an interesting balance. It is. It is. Um, something that's more, like, <laughs> not as much of a big deal, but this happens in, and I mean, it's like, obviously, for the good guy to finish his quest of whatever sort and then marry the girl. He gets the girl and lives happily ever after. But I do feel like Louis L'Amour often has that girl character she's often she's often willing to say things to the main character that like other people don't say like Vashti does not put up with Tucker's nonsense you know yeah <laughs> and and he has the female character be like that a lot and then like you know the guy will fall for her and he'll be like I have to do this thing first but then I'm gonna come back and I want to marry her and like put down roots and have a family and it's just, it just, it's so, like, one of my favorite Louis L'Amour books is Silver Canyon, which that one's hilarious, because he, like, rides into town, he sees this girl, and he's like, I'm gonna marry her. And then he walks up to her and tells her so. <laughs> You're the one for me! <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that desire to have a family, to put down roots, and to be a family man above any other Thing that you are I just get the feeling that that mattered to him and he wasn't just writing it because it was the trope that the hero gets the girl this is interesting I was just thinking about this the other day do you feel like it was a lot easier for people to find a life partner back then than it is today like for instance in a culture like the wild west most people valued hard work they valued honesty they valued having a good reputation and they valued like being straightforward and just being who you are and, and not being upfront about that right so those were some pretty common values that most everyone who was like a good person held back then whereas today in our current culture and it, it's like i feel like it's so much harder to find a spouse these days because it's like people have so many different opinions on how life should be lived and their value systems. And they have so many different experiences in one common area, which is like, it's cool that that's the case, but it also makes it harder to find someone who thinks enough like you that you could live with them, but at the same time is different enough that, you know, like it's a good match. But I don't know. I feel like things were a lot more simple back then in that specific area of life. I don't know. I think to some extent, this like idea of the past was more simple is always somewhat of a, an illusion like human nature was still human nature so yeah people still valued hard work and honesty but people still had a really hard time not being dishonest and lazy because <laughs> humans are humans but i know what you mean i do think there probably was more of a like homogeneity of culture probably i mean like yeah, I think a lot of people had more of a shared worldview. Yeah, it was kind and of a more sure unified culture easier. because it was so concentrated in their specific situation. Mm hmm. And I mean, like, that was still a time when America specifically was a country of immigrants, you know, like now we're more of a country of my ancestors immigrated here one to five generations ago 
So, like, mm-hmm. not that there aren't current immigrants, but you know what I mean. Um, and so when you first come to America, like, lots of people came for religious reasons, like, of religious persecution and wanting religious freedom or wanting freedom of other sorts. So, like, we take it for granted that we live in a country that's more free than, like, most countries throughout history. But they didn't take that for granted. So that's another, like, element of shared worldview that they, like, often shared faith and values. And we're much more splintered now. Yeah. And we just take things for granted. We're a bit spoiled by the hard work they put in up front. Yeah. Thank you, ancestors. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, were there any other common elements you wanted to discuss? Oh... I'm not going to talk, like, reluctance to be known as, like, a man of violence is a common thing. Value, an emphasis on hard work, an emphasis on, like, building civilization. Those are common things. But the only one I'm going to actually mention more than briefly is love of the land. Because I don't know if everyone understands what this concept means. (laughs) Because when I try to talk about it, I just, I can't talk about it very well. And I also feel like I am met with blank incomprehension. (laughs) but (laughs) I just okay do you know what I mean when I say that Louis L'Amour exhibits in his writing this like palpable love of the land yeah you do okay can you explain it because I can't (laughs) um so do you mean like specifically like like the land is how we earn our living and we rely off of it. Therefore, it's like we have this appreciable partnership with it. Or do you mean more like, you know, admiring the view and the quality of it or like which there's so many different things wrapped up in this topic. (laughs) I think and I think it must be somewhat of both because there's definitely the first element present. But like when he writes about like when there's a character and they're like stranded in the desert and they look up and like, They're, like, surrounded by this desert wilderness. Like, there's nothing, there's no partnership there. Like, the desert wants to kill you, but, like, it's still beautiful to you. You still have this love of it. And it's very, like, he said, one of his, the quotes I didn't read was he said something about he loves to go into really wild land, mountains or desert. Mm -hmm. And I get that. Like, mountains and desert are the two things that it's, like, there's, like, you have to, like, you're loving something that doesn't love you back, if that makes sense. Whereas with, like, your farmland, yeah, you love your farm, and I think that love of the land is also part of it, but there's just this love of... Being changed by land also? Yeah. Yeah, I... Like, the terrain you live in really shapes you as a person, and I I don't know, know. I I think of even our our two-week-long vacation through the Midwest just camping in all these different places the west. it wasn't the midwest <laughs> or yeah the west just like coming back and being like hmm, i feel slightly changed by that a little bit like i just got to taste something and be a part of something ever so briefly that was beyond myself and i feel like if you were to really live in and survive off a of terrain like that that would shape you and your perspective of life and the way and your lifestyle itself in a more practical sense i yes i believe that it does yeah, it, it was so, it was funny too, wasn't it? Like, coming back and it's like, there's like green everywhere. Like, corn is growing everywhere. <laughs> what is this? 
Yeah. Because, and, and it's, you know, like, I love the Midwest, and I love the West. I think I love the West. And it's such, it is different, because the Midwest is, like, land that you live off of, and the West is land that you sojourn on, even if you live there your whole life. Like, it's not the same. I don't I do not know how to explain this, but one of the quotes was, um, when I was looking and listening in the stillness like that, it seemed I could almost feel the mountains changing, for no matter how changeless and timeless they may seem, they are never twice the same. And there's just a couple, you know, there's moments, like the one you mentioned before, throughout the book where Tucker describes something and it's like, yeah, like I've never heard someone talk about it quite like that, but I can just, it's not yeah. that I can, oh, I can feel it and I'm there. It's like, I feel your love for this land. It's so interesting. I, I, I don't know what it is. I just think it's interesting. It's and kind I of like magical. that Lula has it in his books. Yeah. It is. It is. It's like what he said about the cowboys, how they went west looking for something and by and large they found it. Yeah. Like, yeah, whatever it is, it's there. <laughs> and we leave that up to our listeners to find for themselves. Thank you so much for listening to the 11th episode of The Two Retired Homeschoolers. We strongly encourage you to rate and review and or subscribe and like. You can also leave us an email and give us some book suggestions. We may or may not take them, but we're more likely to take them, I believe. Yes, and um, we are going to take an extra week because the next book we're doing is Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. And Holly thinks that it's a long book, so... We'll see you in three weeks. I also just have a busy life and I need time. <laughs> so yeah. All right. See you guys. And stay tuned for bloopers. Whereas today in our current culture in, you know, the 20th century America, it seems like people have... 21st. 21st century America. <laughs> you know, I just want to be back then <laughs> after reading all these books. <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm not even finishing any of my sentences. <laughs> but... <laughs>